This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and let's talk about sex. And uh, this morning, we're going to be speaking about a subject that's part of my everyday life now. I have a new little grandson named James, and uh, he is developing. He's in his second year of life, a little toddler. And uh, one of the big things that's coming up, as it does with all children, is uh, aspects of sexual development. And uh, this got us started. Uh, Jen is here. How are you doing today, Jen? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm a little tired after taking care of the grandson a bit. But, I can uh, imagine. Yeah. But uh, you suggested, actually, that we talk about the subject of childhood sexuality. So I think it's a really good one. And there's a lot of new information out there. And you looked up information from the American Academy of Pediatrics. A, a couple of interesting papers we'll talk about. But uh, I wanted to just start out and say that our field, psychology and psychiatry, were largely framed, at least the child and adolescent parts of it, by structures uh, based on childhood sexuality. And so Freud's ideas, which are in some ways discounted, but at the same time definitely paid attention to, there's really kind of a dual thing going on there, and other early psychologists and psychiatrists, Melanie Klein, for example, uh, Reich, uh, all of them had early uh, sets of psychosexual development. And those uh, developmental milestones are something that we come back, revisit, take a look at. But it's there, and it's kind of there in everybody's consciousness that childhood sexuality has a role. And I think many people have questions about it, and they wonder about it. What's going on with these kids, actually? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually, what's interesting is Freud was very correct in a lot of ways of understanding that sexuality really kind of pervades your life. That mm -hmm. I think for a long time we had this idea, and some people still hold this idea, that your sexual life really doesn't begin until puberty. And I think what we're we're starting to see and what you and I have constantly been trying to expand, I think, through these conversations is really understanding that your sexual life begins very young and it's not a sexual life in the same way it would be when you're a teen or when you're an adult but the idea of your body and the way you relate to things and different people and those relationships that all starts very early and I think using the word sex with the word children freaks out a lot of people. But what I'm seeing shift is I have more parents coming in and often they have questions about, oh, my child is doing this, you know, touching their genitals in public. Is this normal? Now there are more instances where maybe their child is like filming another, excuse me, their mm -hmm. child is filming another child because, you know, a lot of children have so much access to phones now that they just 
they see it as just a normal thing. Oh, I'm just filming another thing. And it freaks parents out because it's, you know, you can't do that to other kids. What are you doing? And I think the way that parents or just adults and even siblings react helps shape or does shape a lot of our beliefs around sex and sexual behaviors. Absolutely. You know, I'm thinking about yesterday and spending the morning with two little toddlers and uh, the little girl who is with my grandson gave him a big kiss and came right over and planted it on him. And she, like many little kids, wanted more attention from my little grandson. And this was her way of doing it. And uh, she and I and the babysitter kind of looking at him for his reactions and expecting that he'd have a reaction. What was interesting, he kind of just took it in stride, went through it. You know, he had his reaction, but it was kind of like, this is normal. That's who my little friend is. And yeah. uh, it just went straight ahead, way like that. But I think there's so many adult ideas that we have about childhood sexuality that we really place a lot of them backwards onto the kids. And uh, it's really how we think about it and how we think our own about our own sexuality when we're with children. You know, really, what is the meaning? Is this really true? Or is this an, an idea that we picked up that may not be so healthy to put onto kids? What should we really be worried about? And you bring up the other, the cyber world is a big change for this generation, because even these little toddlers picked up cell phones yesterday, looked at pictures of themselves, and took pictures. You know, so it's a different world that we're really, that part of it is different. Well, I think one of the big shifts there, too, is for the most part, most people still see children as very innocent, and they see sexuality as, I guess, the opposite of innocence, right? (laughs) And so having those two worlds collapse, collide is what I meant to say clash and then I said collide but um, having those two worlds collide with each other I think is hard for people to deal with because they see children as innocent and then when they engage in something that is perceived to be sexual in a way it is a threat to the innocence that they're perceiving yeah I, I think one change in people's thinking that might be helpful and is something that I've learned in the field as a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist is that sexuality can be innocent, not only for children, but for all of us. And to associate it, you know, with a feeling of wonder and that we really don't want to take advantage of another person. We instead want to explore together, maybe. That's a really amazing and wonderful thing. I think the problem with sexuality is it's often associated with manipulating and aggressing upon another person. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, their guidelines really state that when sexuality becomes a red flag with our kids, it's about manipulation and aggression associated with sexuality, not so much about sexuality. Right, because sexuality or part of sexuality, the positive part of sexuality is the curiosity, is the exploration, is the connection, is the relational component. And I think that we have to be able to see it as a whole because sexuality can be taken in that way. It can be turned into something to be manipulated, a way to grab power, but it isn't inherently that. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday morning, in addition to the little kiss, 
uh, the little friend who was a girl, uh, went over to my little grandson when he wasn't paying attention. He was kind of working on a, a gate closing, open, close, and not paying attention to her. And it, I have to say, these little babies are only 14 months old, but she then bit him uh, mm-hmm. when he would not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she'd already tried the kiss. Mm-hmm. He's not going to play the work. game she wants. So I, of course, being an older grandmother with not very good vision, didn't see it. But the babysitter picked up on it immediately and then shared with me her view, which, uh, you know, she's a lovely young woman and really knowledgeable. She said, look, he, he she does this a lot when she can't get the attention. She'll try the kiss first. Mm-hmm. And then next is this to get him involved. And, uh, you know, that's what I saw her pay attention to. She kind of reframed it. We don't use biting, you know, we're going to, she moved her away. She engaged her in another activity, all of that. But it reminded me that this aggression can occur early. That's what we pay attention to, not the kiss. And we note this other thing, we redirect and kind of reshape the thinking around it. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect example, though, of that very easily could have gone in a different direction, you know, and I think a lot of it is that people are not consciously thinking about these things all the time, which would be very hard to do, and so you end up shaming or redirecting in ways that sometimes later on down the line, kids hold on to these rigid ideas without really understanding where they got them, and I know a lot of my therapy work is dealing with people in their sexual lives and figuring out like, oh, that's interesting. What makes you think that, you know, you can't say this to somebody or what makes you think that the only way to get attention is to do something like this? And as funny as it is, sometimes it does go all the way back to child. Right. And I think, again, um, the idea of shaming is uh, an emotion that is often connected with the second and third years of life. Yeah. Because it's a, it's really sharing with the child some of her own beliefs about it and making them feel in a negative way, really, about their actions. So the babysitter very kindly did not want this little girl to feel ashamed of either of her behaviors, but wanted to point out that biting people is hurts him. Though he, he was kind of nonplussed, you know, he's still working on his gate when this is going on, sure. which tells you something about the relationship between the two kids. But, you know, you want to reframe that biting other people is not a way to really engage them in that. So, again, dealing with the more aggressive aspect of it. And I think, to the body boundaries, you know, yes. that we yes. have talked about this in one of our other podcasts, at least, but certainly when I'm thinking about young kids, when you're talking about what do you teach them in terms of sex and sexuality, one of the biggest things you teach them is body boundaries, you know, that you have to respect your own body and that other people need to respect your body and you need to respect other people's bodies. Exactly. And with little kids, that comes up right away. Because little kids don't have the same body boundaries, you know. Both the little girl and the little boy would climb all over my body, touching all parts, and maybe unaware of 
reactions that adults would have to that completely unaware. Yeah. And I think, you know, how much of that do you share with children or how much of that is the collective shame and negativity that we all carry? You know, when the little grandson grabs a breast or, you know, sits in an intimate spot, do you think, oh, he's doing this to provoke me, you know, or this is sexually provocative, or what type of reaction do I have to this? Mm -hmm. You know, when he's really using adults to leverage his little body up to standing, which is not so easy for him. Right. It's a different perspective. And I think it's holding that idea that sometimes when kids behave sexually, they're not doing it from the same place. They're not coming from a sexual place. They're just climbing on a person, you know? And and so I think it's important to hold those two things, understanding our perspective and their perspectives. And that can sometimes be hard to do. And we as adults are often triggered by kids. Oh yeah. You know, sometimes by touch, sometimes by seeing things visually and it brings up stuff for us and things that happened to us when we were kids. Oh, absolutely. You know, so how to be aware of that. I guess for parents listening out there, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a very nice kind of website and they have information about healthy sexuality with kids. So you could look up red flags and just to say a bit about the negative, you know, I am consulted a lot about uh, sexual abuse with young children in preschools and Mm -hmm. in uh, elementary school. So there are, you know, the negative, violent, aggressive aspects that do occur, you know, often with groups of children or a child that has more knowledge and uh, inflicts aggressive acts on another child. So abuse can happen, you know, but that's the, the thing, the red flag to pay attention to is really the aggressivity associated with it. Absolutely. I think on top of that is the idea that I see a lot of parents who maybe have had abuse in their history, and they obviously want to prevent that from their child, but in doing so, they restrict them from activities that, you know, I think of like sleepovers, for example, or sleepaway camps, or things where the parents can't be there to control them, or they won't, you know, put them in a swimming camp, or things Mm -hmm. like that. And I think instead, it's really, instead of trying to protect children, which is a lot of times what people are doing, it's really about seeing protection in a different way. You can protect your child by teaching them body boundaries, by teaching them about what is good touch and what is bad touch, by teaching them what is okay, what is not okay. And I think it's a different way of looking at it. So instead of it coming from this very fear-based, like, well, you can't go to this sleepover because something terrible might happen, it's really how do I prepare you to be aware that these things could happen without sort of terrifying your child either. I know I had a lot of kids, boys and girls, who were furious at their parents because they would never get to go to sleepovers and all the cool things would happen and then they would feel ostracized in school. And working with the parents, a lot of times it would come out, you know, when I was their age, my uncle abused me or grandpa or the neighbor, you know, whoever. A lot of times parents are playing out their own trauma stories and being able to separate them from how you're uh, engaging with your child around these sexual matters, I think is a lot of work, but it's important work. Yeah. And parents have to talk more. 
mm-hmm. about the sexual abuse component than they do. The the good touch, bad touch is a frame. Yeah. But I think being able to talk with kids about how you they could be manipulated yeah. into doing things, sexual things, and how an adult pretends, even an uncle, to be your friend. Mm-hmm. And then you end up with a, a situation that is very negative and maybe talking a little bit about that. And that should be in the good touch, bad touch programs that kids get. And all parents, I think, you know, need to say that. If you're afraid about a sleepover, say what you're worried about. Exactly. You know, I'm worried that, you know, an adult might touch you even when you're unprepared for it. You might be asleep and how you can always call mom or how you could react to that. So you have a little game plan around that. But you still don't want them to be so fearful they don't go to the fun sleepovers and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it does affect their later lives because those social engagements teach them about whether or not they will be respected or not. And I think it's very important in building security is to build a sense of, I can handle this. I have a plan. I I can reach out to somebody. I can tell, you know, the parent. I can tell my mom. I can tell my dad. Yeah. The kids who tell who've been sexual abused, who disclose right away, that is because their mom has had a conversation, their dad has had a conversation, and they've said... This is something to pay attention to and then share with me. And I think that's where you really want to help your child is to have more of those conversations and prepare them for these things and prepare them for other kids and adults who are being more aggressive or in the case of most adults, trying to give them presents, be especially nice, develop a relationship that's different from uh, the one you normally have with adults. Right. I mean, and I think also to pull it back from just the abuse, it's also just about hitting and biting and, you know, sometimes it's even hugs, kisses, handshakes. It's really about learning that if you're not okay with it, you can express that and have that be respected. And I think that carries on particularly for girls and women later on in life as things become more explicitly sexual it's important to have this foundation of being able to stand up for yourself and respect yourself absolutely because we see both you and i see a lot of teenagers yeah who are engaged in very you know negative sexual relationships with their peers yeah and they have not only not learned that now they're in a sexual relationship and that, that aggression is part of it exactly so i think really to pay attention to you know, what you opened my eyes to with this, Jennifer, too, is, again, reminding me that shame is such a big part of this. And one of the oh, articles you pulled for us to look at, and we'll talk about in a longer, really, podcast, yeah. is the one by Carol Shadbolt on sexuality and shame. And she's a therapist, psychoanalyst in England, and really talks a lot about the role that shame plays throughout our sexuality. And uh, I think, again, this starts right at the age we're talking about, those little toddlers in the backyard. (laughs) I think so. And this may seem kind of like a left field, but I will promise to tie it in. It reminds me of how fathers, a lot of the time, are sort of 
shoved to the side. They either choose to not be involved or they don't know how to be involved. And I think shame plays a big role in that because they feel either that, you know, they cannot be the one to talk to their daughters or that this sexual realm is not their territory. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, just to say this, we were, we set up our podcast at UCSF. We have a nice room for it. And we're helped by some very fine workers here who have, uh, you know, really inspired us to carry on this podcast. And one shared this morning about his two-year-old daughter, three-year-old daughter, and, and potty training. And he's able to be more explicit and less shaming in some ways than the the mom and yeah and you know and how that works and you know again i think dads could learn this you know they could learn to impart not only not aggression but that kind of fun neutrality around sexuality that leaves it open for the child really yeah and i think there's a there's an aspect of sexuality that can be very playful, and I think being able to introduce that element instead of it, the shame, which makes it a very negative sort of avoid type thing, when you start having sexual feelings, that is very complex and confusing because it feels good, it's exciting, there's curiosity and playfulness, but there's also the, oh, but this is bad, you should avoid it if you... You know, if you commit this, you're committing a sin. All these things that, like, mesh together. Yeah. And it starts early. Yeah. And you bring up the sin part of it. Yeah. And uh, being raised Catholic and having to deal with some of the Catholic ideas about sexuality that existed and still exist. Yeah. Um, you know, to contend with that is a tough one. Because a parent has their own feelings about it. Then they have a religion that they feel like they have to impart, you know, religious values. And that really complicates sexuality. You know, and I think holds back a lot of parents who might want to say to their two-year-old, hey, this is great. Yeah. You know, you're doing this. This is so fun. Yeah. You know, it's a very different way to look at it. Well, I think what's interesting, too, is I see a lot of parents that maybe skew what some would say more liberal or more open-minded in, in terms of sexuality, but they feel somewhat policed by their other parents around them in terms of being able to introduce concepts to their kids. Because yeah. if their kids know more, and then they share that with another child in class, it can come back to them through the parents. And so it's very interesting, I think, the dynamic that we still very much, in some ways, live in a very conservative, sexual environment. And it affects how people who want to be less conservative, and I'm not talking about political conservativeness, but just, I guess, not expressing, not being more open, not being more explicit in terms. It definitely affects parents who want to do things differently. They also feel very policed. Exactly. And I think the United States is a restrictive sexual culture. By that, we mean it has very strict gender roles. It has prohibitions about bisexuality, transgendered, homosexuality. They come up periodically. You know, there'll be a better period, but then they come up again. But that restrictive sexual culture really affects parents. I mean, they're part of it. They worry that if they don't restrict their child, the child won't fit in the culture. Exactly. But it's a restrictive sexual culture. you got to kind of weigh that. The health and, of the yeah, child. Yeah, exactly. The exactly. Of the 
Yeah. That actually brings up, so recently I was working with a kid, and they came in and they happened to be wearing flip-flops. And he had, like, one toe was painted green and one was mm. painted blue. And he's very much a child who falls along gender stereotype uh, roles. So he's a boy. He loves sports, loves playing, like, these aggressive video games. For the most part, he very much sees himself as a very stereotypical boy. And he was telling me about how he was so excited about getting his toenails painted. And originally, like, he brought it up as a joke, thinking his mom wouldn't let him. And then she did. And he was so excited. And... He was worried about, like, his shoes falling off at school because then the kids might see and they might make fun of him. And I thought that was just a perfect example of, like, how complex these things can be. I mean, it's just a painted big toenail. But it has a lot but more meaning. so much more than that. So how would you handle that with him? Well, we talked about it, <laughs> yeah. you know. So we talked about yeah. how he felt and that he really enjoyed it. And we talked about he's eight, nine, I can't remember. He had a birthday recently. That's why I can't remember. But we talked about like social pressures, basically. I didn't use those words, but I talked about how, you know, sometimes what are your worries around the kids? You know, he was like, well, you know, they might call me names or they might think I'm a girl. And so we talked about that. And I think that's a perfect example of, you know, because I just stayed really neutral in my response when he was sharing with me, I saw his eyes, you know, they were kind of wary and he like mm -hmm. saw me looking at his toes. And so being able to bring it out in the open can be uncomfortable at times. At the same time, then you get to explore all the complexities that I think he's better and just so our listeners kind of aware, and I think most listeners know this, uh, strict gender roles have already been taken in by age three. Oh, yeah. So children are already conscious Colors, of it. Toys. Yeah, you know, numbers, mm -hmm. boy, girl, and boys do this, girls do this, and what about the rest of us who don't feel we're boy or girl kind of thing? Yeah. But it, it's a really challenging time to realize that the role that gender plays in this, and gender should maybe allow us identity and not so much restrict us. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's the hard thing. I, I even saw gender issues in the little, you know, my little grandson and the little girl, you know, but they come from a position of me as an adult with all this knowledge looking back right. and not here are these little 13, 14 month olds having a good time in the backyard kind right. of thing, you know. Right. Well, Jennifer, this is definitely a topic for another time, too. But uh, childhood sexuality, I think, is very important. How we parent, how we're th we therapize kids with it, how we engage in the world, really, around it. I think also, just to tie it all together again, coming back, is exactly as you said. You know, it's really recognizing that sexuality starts really young, and so it doesn't have to be this scary, dangerous thing in the way that people think of it. But really, you can start engaging in these conversations very young. And there are things you can do that can set set the stage for things to be easier down the line. To be able to have these conversations early normalizes them. It really does for all of us, even for the adults. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Come on. Let's talk about sex.